Are your school days out of sight? When you took English, art, and math, what's your favorite Fahrenheit? How sour are the grapes of wrath? Do you need a challenger for discussing Salinger? Do you love the written word? What happened to the mockingbird? Our show is just beginning, so find a place to sit. These questions will be on the test. It's time for sophomore lit. Welcome back to Sophomore Lit, where we reread your 10th grade reading list. I'm John McCoy, and with me is returning co-host Jacob Holler. Hi. It's been a while since you've been on, so why don't you reintroduce yourself to uh, everyone out there? Sure. Um, as he said, my name's Jacob Haller. These days, I uh, can mostly be found live streaming on Twitch, mostly music and video games, but occasionally other things. Uh, crafting streams and whatnot. I also am a musician, and I recently re- released a Christmas single, The Christmas Lobster, which you can find on Spotify and Bandcamp, along with most of my other music. So this time we are doing uh, Mark Twain's most famous work, uh, Tom Sawyer, from 1876. Largely today uh, overlooked in literary circles, certainly in literature courses, uh, because the sequel, Huckleberry Finn, is considered by far the superior work. Um, Tom Sawyer, nonetheless, is the beloved 19th century novel of childhood. Um, You want to talk a bit about this book and, and any history you have with it? Sure. So basically, I... I think that I first kind of became conscious of Mark Twain when I was maybe maybe in junior high school or perhaps even late elementary school when my family, uh, you know, which my extended family that all lived fairly close to each other in central Massachusetts um, got in the habit of getting together once a week and reading a chapter from The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And which I enjoyed very much, uh, just kind of the voice of Finn and a lot of the kind of humorous touches and things I just really loved. So after that, we had this book called The Unabridged Mark Twain, which is like a thousand pages or something, um, which didn't have all of his published work, but had all all of the best known things, inclu- you know, uh, a, few, a few novels, some novelettes, short stories, and essays. And I read that pretty much cover to cover. So I first encountered Tom Sawyer as a book then. I think I may have seen bits and pieces of some adaptations at some point. And at the time, I didn't enjoy it very much, you know, because Huckleberry Finn had made such an impression on me, and Tom Sawyer is not told in that voice. And, well, we'll get into it, I'm sure. But at the time, I didn't particularly like it. And I haven't really reread it since then until now. So that's kind of my history. What's your history with it? Well, <laughs> when, when I was a very young kid in 1973, so I would have been five years old, there was a movie adaptation of Tom Sawyer that came out. Uh, it was uh, done by the Sherman brothers who uh, 
movie aficionados will know as the songwriting team behind a lot of Disney movies, uh, like Mary Poppins was Sherman and Sherman. Uh, they also did some of the songs for, uh, Disneyland. I think they did, uh, it's a small world, for example, or, and, uh, the, if anyone remembers the, uh, what is it? The, the carousel of tomorrow in Tomorrowland, where you go through and you see what the future will bring. They, they wrote the song. There's a great, big, wonderful tomorrow. Uh, so this, this film starred, uh, Johnny Whitaker, who was at the time the star of Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, uh, a show that I watched, and a, a young actress named Jodie Foster played uh, Becky Thatcher, I think, mm-hmm. in one of her very first roles. Um, she must have been 10 or something at the time. Um, and and, and I, I love this film. Uh, if you look at it today, it's not a good film, not, not a great film. It's a, it's a musical. The songs are largely forgettable. Um, it takes out all of what makes Twain valuable and meaningful, and it makes the whole movie into a very sentimentalized version of, of, of childhood. Uh, But I often think about that because, of course, Johnny Whitaker uh, went on to have not a great career uh, to the point that uh, fans of my brother's podcast, The Flophouse, will probably know he ended up playing the father in A Talking Cat, uh, which is an inexplicable movie that I do uh, recommend people look up if they don't know it. It is absolutely the strangest film you will ever see. And of course, Jodie Foster went on to become one of the most uh, celebrated and respected actors of her generation. And I often think about that. I don't know what what lesson to take away from that, but um, I I wonder if they keep in touch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they run into each other and (laughs) compare notes. (laughs) So anyway, after seeing that movie, I, I think I read... Tom Sawyer, um, I don't know, two dozen times as, as a kid. Uh, my parents were uh, subscribers to the Heritage Book Club uh, editions, and those editions had the Norman Rockwell illustrations for Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, which are are lovely. They're very they're 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 very charming, um, uh, you know. And then. Life came in the way, and I have not read Tom Sawyer in the intervening years myself. But I was thinking, because I had already done Huckleberry Finn on this podcast, why not go back and and, and reread uh, Tom Sawyer? And uh, we'll we'll see whether that pays off for either of us. Yeah. Um, well, I did re-listen to that episode uh, where you covered the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn uh, with your guest host Jelani Sims. And I remember one of the sort of questions that came out of that was uh, Jelani said, you know, I, I went into Huckleberry Finn thinking maybe I'll read Tom Sawyer afterward and just to sort of get the context. But then when I was done, I thought, no, maybe I'm kind of done with Tom Sawyer, <laughs> which is pretty reasonable. Uh, 
there are parts of this book that I remember very well from having read it as a child. And then there are parts that I don't remember at all. And I realized that what was happening was when I was a child, I would probably simply skip over long passages of this book that uh, didn't appeal to me. And those passages are when uh, the narrator of the book, uh, the the voice of of Mark Twain, who in the conceit of the book is very, the, the narrator of this book is very closely aligned with the actual Mark Twain. He, he, he refers to himself uh, at the beginning. There's the, the line, if uh, Tom had been a great and wise philosopher, like the writer of this book. Yes. And there's these points where that narrative voice goes off in strange directions, in satirizing uh, the religion of middle America, in satirizing uh, the educational system of uh, middle America, in satirizing the artistic aspirations of middle America, and things like the temperance movement. Those are the things that I find fascinating now. Uh, as an adult, uh, or at least as maybe as someone who's spent too much time reading great books for a podcast, I'm fascinated that he did that. The rest of the book is very much a highly sentimentalized, nostalgic view of of childhood, particularly a nostalgic view of pre-Civil War childhood. This is a book that's written post-Civil War about uh, a time pre-Civil War. So I liked this book better than I kind of expected. Um, and I think the way it's structured is kind of, it seems sort of slapped together in a way, sort of, but I think it's actually pretty intentional, or a lot of it is. And I thought that was interesting. And I did think, you know, I'm not, I, I wasn't sure... Well, I sort of tried to think of like, what purpose did this book, reading this book and writing it at the time have? And then what does, what purpose does reading it now have? Um, and one of the things that you get now is just this portrait of a society and some of the things Twain is, seems to feel quite critical, you know, it, you get the sense that Twain himself is quite critical of certain aspects of the society. Um, and others, it's harder to tell, although from our perspective, they seem quite horrifying, um, slavery being a major one, uh, but also things like, you know, I mean, Tom is caned very frequently um, and beaten in some cases quite badly, So, as are many of the other children. Um, so that's all like kind of interesting to sort of look back on and see not only um, what Twain thought would be recognizable to his audience, but then also what his own attitude was towards those things, you know, just as kind of a historical question. But then also a lot of it is they're pretty entertaining. I thought a lot of the sort of vignettes are worked for me and made me laugh. It is interesting that you say that this book feels slapped together because that is the great uh, the great truth about Huckleberry Finn is Huckleberry Finn is a novel that 
got out of Twain's hand. He started it in one direction and it spun off in three or four other directions by the time he was done with it. And it feels rather schizophrenic reading that book. I feel like this book, um, Twain is trying very hard to tell the kind of story he thinks uh, the readership will want. It's, a, a, again, a story about a mischievous child who uh, has adventures. At the beginning of the book, we are when we are introduced to Tom, the great uh, the great aspect of his character is this romantic mind engaged in flights of fancy based upon an imperfect understanding of uh, various romantic sources such as Robin Hood, stories of pirates, stories of robbers, stories of the kings of Europe. Somewhere along the line, he seems to have absorbed the plot of Richard III. Um, mm. It's never quite clear how he got these things in his head because he doesn't seem to do a lot of reading. But he has this this fantastical uh, vision of the world and that's contrasted with sort of the mundane day-to-day -day life. But by the end of the story, he actually gets wrapped up in a crazy, a crazy plot that deals with murder, that deals with buried treasure, uh, that deals with almost dying in a cave. Um, so it, it's sort of like uh, by the end of the book, Twain really wants to indulge perhaps a reader's uh, appetite for that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, um, as I mentioned to you in email, I read the sequels to Huckleberry Finn, which are told from Huckleberry, you know, they're, they're first person stories told by Huckleberry Finn, but they're about Tom Sawyer. And the second of those, Tom Sawyer Detective, which was written in 1896 and is quite short, it's like 66 pages. And it's like one of those, it's, you know, like in this book, I would say that there are kind of three major adventures, two of which overlap. There's the, or they all kind of overlap, but there's the whole murder plot. Then there's um, Tom and his friends, you know, go to their own funeral, that whole thing. And then there's like the cave and simultaneously Huckleberry Finn is interacting with, uh, Joe, the villain. Um, and Tom Sawyer Detective is like, if you took one of those stories, probably the murder story, and took everything else out, and it's just that. Um, and reading that kind of made me realize that I missed the other stuff. <laughs> um, you know, that I liked that there's like half a chapter that is devoted to Tom Sawyer waking up on an island and looking at all the insects that are around him. You know, I was like, oh, this is kind of, I, I like this. To the extent that Twain actually tries to write plots, um, I think that, that sometimes his writings fall apart. Aside from the Tom Sawyer Huckleberry Finn's book, he's known for uh a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court and for The Prince and the Pauper. Um, stories that I feel are 
you know, in, in some ways, the Prince and the Pauper is his real wholehearted attempt to write a traditional romance. Um, Connecticut Yankee being, again, a, a sort of a send up of, of romance novels. And I, I don't know that he's the best at, at, at writing plots, but he's great at writing moment to moment dialogue. And he's great at writing these sorts of interior uh, thought processes. Um, I, I'm very fond of, of one of the, the, the later things he wrote was the um, Diaries of Adam and Eve. And while those are, are sort of problematic today in the sort of essentialist approach that they take towards men and women... I still think that those are some of the most charmingly written things he's ever done. And they don't really have a plot either. And, and, and they're better for that. Well, I'm curious that about your opinion about a scene towards the end where um, Tom, real, you know, uh, after Tom has been res you know, re has rescued himself and Becky from the cave, and, you know, he's been sick bed for a few days and then there's a few days more before he talks to Huckleberry Finn. And then he sort of tells the story of the cave to Huckleberry. And then uh, it's revealed that the entrance to the cave has been sealed up. And Tom has this moment of horror where he's like, but Joe is still in that the, the villain who's the full name that they give in the book. I'm not going to say. Um <laughs> is still in the cave, you know, and he, he, despite the fact that this person is, is a murderer and stuff, Tom is horrified by it. And then they go to the cave and open it up and find Joe inside. And for me, that whole passage was stood out from the rest of the book in that, and it's being kind of harrowing and effective in a way. But was that your experience of it? That was definitely Twain trying his hand at writing something gothic you know he wanted there there's there was this crazy moment where they talk about uh how when they find joe's body he uh, he has been engaged in trying to chip away at the 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 door that he's locked behind and how futile that is and how he tried to sustain himself in the last days uh, by eating bats and drinking the water that dripped from the ceiling. And <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned that because that was actually something I highlighted. The, the narrator describes the scene of water dripping from this one stalactite. And that's what Joe has been uh, being hy hydrating himself with. And, it's a, and Twain writes... That drop was falling when the pyramids were new, when Troy fell, when the foundations of Rome were laid, when Christ was crucified, when the conqueror created the British Empire, when Columbus sailed, when the massacre at Lexicon was news. It is falling now. It will still be falling when all these things shall have sunk down into the afternoon of history and the twilight of tradition and have been swallowed up in the thick night of oblivion. Has everything a purpose and a mission? Did this drop fall patiently during 5,000 years to be ready for this flitting human insect's need? It's so overwritten, but it is also not clearly satire either. 
um, in in the way that I think Twain uh, normally flags his satire. I mean, it's, it's not ineffective. It's just weird. Yeah, and he follows it up, if I remember right, by basically saying, and now it's a tourist attraction because <laughs> Joe has died there. And he's his scorn for the townspeople is evident there in a way that it is not really in other parts of the book. Like elsewhere, when he talks about the town people, there's at least some level of, you know, nostalgia or romance to like, oh, these idiots, you know, <laughs> like kind of a fondness to it. But here he's like, you know, and then they write to the governor to try to get Joe pardoned. And what is even that about, you know? Uh, um, yeah, it's it's like an odd thing. It's an area where Twain is talking to the reader in a direct way that he doesn't really do too much elsewhere in this book. Um, and it definitely, right. I mean, I guess that's right. It's, it's very striking and yet exactly what is, what are we supposed to take away from it? I don't, I'm not necessarily sure. This book was written about 11 years after the end of the civil war. And it's being written about uh, Twain's, writing about the fictional town of St. Uh, Peter's, uh, was it St. Petersburg or where, in, in Missouri, which doesn't exist, uh, which is modeled after his own hometown of Hannibal, Missouri. Uh, Twain is most associated with these stories he wrote uh, on his life in and around uh, Missouri and on the Mississippi, uh, he spent most of his uh, actual productive years writing, living up here in in New England, uh, in in Connecticut, I believe. Um, by the way, this book, Tom Sawyer, was one of the very first novels uh, written entirely on ty uh, typewriter. Uh, uh, Twain was an early adopter of the typewriter. Uh, and, and apparently an investor in typewriter companies that I don't think he actually made money off of that. But um, do with that what you will. I, they, this does mark a, a, a moment in time where writers are moving away from writing everything out longhand uh, with a pen and paper to a point where people were starting to, to, to write with typewriters and all of what that you know, maybe maybe that had something to do with the episodic nature of this, um, and the and the way it was patched together. Because uh, it's I think a lot easier to to write little scenes and then shuffle the papers around and and, and put them together into a book like this. Yeah, um, um, but, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, uh, right. Yeah, no. He claimed that this was the first novel written on typewriter, which. I think we do not necessarily need to take his word on, but yes. No, yeah, we, we, you don't. You don't need to take Twain's word word on 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 many things. But it was an early novel written on typewriter. It, it is it is a novel that is written about nostalgia for the pre-war time, and that that might feel distasteful to to us today, particularly considering that you know obviously. It wasn't a great time in America for a lot of people, for, you know, for certainly for the enslaved people in America. It wasn't a great time necessarily to be a, a, a woman in America. It wasn't a great time for certainly to be Native American. Uh, this this novel does not uh, just does not treat 
Native Americans very kindly at all. Um, but Twain uses this uh, this book of, of childhood memory to slowly pick apart all of the values of, of this of this time and these people mm. uh, from like a, a, from the the church going and f- and from uh, from schooling to people in he he makes fun of people in power he makes fun of the aspirations of, of these people there's one entire chapter which is about a um talent show uh, that that is put on tom is in it for maybe two sentences and then he's gone and then it's entirely the narrator ripping into all these people for the the stupid declamations that they're doing he quotes them at length that really feels like uh twain was trying to write a comic essay that never quite came together so he stuck it into this novel it is kind of vicious i think that that's where i start to feel like twain doesn't really like these people very much it's one thing to make fun of people. It's one thing to make fun of of Tom for being flighty and romantic or to make fun of Huckleberry Finn for being superstitious and easily led. But as the book goes on, I, I, I do think that Twain savages these people. And it's sort of like if you were watching... Uh, if you're watching Happy Days, you know, the old sitcom Happy Days and everything's going along fine. And then suddenly there's an episode about uh, McCarthyism or or something yeah. like that. And like, whoa, this this changed. Something changed here. Yeah. I mean, I think kind of the opposite happened with Happy Days, right? I think at first it was more <laughs> it was it, be, it started off a little darker than it became or at least less cartoony. I don't. I didn't actually watch a ton of it, so maybe I'm totally off. We should uh, we should explore that more in, in our Happy Days uh, podcast. Yes, absolutely. I was a little kid when that was on. All I remember was that Fonzie was really cool. Yeah, well, I think that's that's the big <laughs> takeaway. Um, kind of related to that, I suppose. Like, is how whenever any of the characters refer to a black person they use the n-word right right but the narrator never uses that word the narrator always says slaves or uses the person's actual name you know jim or whoever i don't think as a reader you necessarily take something away from that but it somehow seems a little significant about the fact that it's set you know i don't know 10 or 15 years before the civil war started and is written you know 10 years after um that and maybe also is sort of an indication of what you're saying that mark twain doesn't completely approve of these people and their attitudes um you know the most kind of poetic passages are not are not really about the society so much as, um, I mean, particularly being out in nature or just kids being kids kind of things, um, which there's a lot of kind of boys will be boys stuff in this, which doesn't necessarily age as well as it might 
Um, but at the same time, I feel like you do kind of, you know, people, I certainly have memories of just sort of running around in the, in the woods in central Massachusetts with my friends and just sort of pretending to have sword fights or like, that's definitely something I did as a kid. And so you can kind of relate to those things, no matter how far removed you are from them in time. Um, and that gives kind of the nostalgic patina to it all. Uh, but at the same time, like the, the stuff that is about the actual society, the, um, the beatings, the, which I keep coming back to the fact that <laughs> the kids are playing with dead animals all the time seems odd, but maybe it isn't. <laughs> I think the points you bring up here are great. Uh, I do think that um, you're right that some of the most po poetic passages are, for example, the, the passage where uh, Tom uh, wakes up on the island that he's gone to with his buddies. He's got his he's got this one kid, uh, Joe, that he hangs out with for the first half of the book who kind of disappears in the second half of the book because he's not a very interesting character at all. And Huckleberry Finn is a much more interesting character. Eventually, Twain realized that what he wanted to really do was write in Huckleberry's voice. He wanted to do that kind of dialect humor, the story of sort of a, an, an innocent to the world who is able to ironically comment on things in, in the same way that when Tom uh, wakes up on that island and, and reacts to the natural beauty around him, when you, you read Huckleberry Finn, the thing that keeps happening over and over again is whenever Huckleberry and Jim come to another town or another uh, bit of civilization, they find themselves being uh, disappointed with, disillusioned with the world of what is supposed to be civilized life. And when they go back out onto the river on the, on the raft at night, that's this moment of transcendence that they can be away from that. I think that there's, uh, there's, there's glimmers of that in this book, uh, of that, of that idea. The, the big thematic thing that keeps happening is the a clash between Tom's romantic view of what life could be based upon these fantastical ideas of pirates and robbers and the, the world of, of courtly love and knights and kings and what have you. And then when he actually encounters, what he actually encounters in the world is a world that is dangerous where, uh, adults are hypocritical um where authority is ill-placed there's a kind of a tension between those things it's one thing when when uh, twain has the schoolmaster who is stealing glances at a book on anatomy <laughs> this is the only context in which in in uh the 1830s you can have a book full of naked pictures uh and there's this this there's this hypocrisy there or the hypocrisy of the of the temperance bar that's not that's supposed to not serve alcohol except there's a back room which is where the alcohol is is, is served the the grown-up world is disappointing tom 
has these fantasies about what it is to be a worldly person, to be a um, urbane person, to be uh, you know a, a heroic person. There's not really a world in which you can do that. But on the other hand, Tom is lazy and self-centered. He rushes into things. He doesn't he doesn't really think about the implications of what he's doing. And of course, by the time Huckleberry Finn comes along, Tom Sawyer is sort of transformed into that in that novel to something of an antagonist in the sense that he his his fantasy world leads him to be incredibly cruel to to Jim in that that book. Um Twain would go on to write two more uh books featuring uh Tom because I feel like he completely assassinates Tom's character in in Huckleberry Finn. Tom keeps encountering these dangerous situations um as you say like happening upon a murder um almost getting drowned in a thunderstorm on the island getting lost in the cave um but afterwards he reverts to form right he always goes right back to showing off uh re-entering the sort of the fancy world exaggerating his role in events etc um like i don't well so i almost would say that he doesn't really have character development in this book or in Huckleberry Finn. He's always kind of the same person. Um, except at the end of this book, where uh, Huckleberry Finn has been adopted by, um, who is it? The widow, the widow Douglas. Right. Uh, Huck is, is adopted by the widow Douglas, and after a few weeks, gets sick of it and runs away and everyone thinks he's dead like the people in this town should understand now if a child disappears they're probably not dead they'll show up you know before too long probably um (laughs) but anyway uh he goes and finds him hiding in a barrel or living in a barrel um and convinces him to go back and live with the widow like learn the ways of proper society get an education, etc. cetera. Uh, although he does this by proffering this, like, and then you can join our band of burglars. Um, and that ending, well, what did you think of that ending? It feels sort of like uh, the, the, the Seinfeld, no learning, no hugging uh, <laughs> motto, which is... This book is about nothing. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we've come through this traumatic experience where... Tom is actually able to be a little bit heroic with with Becky in the cave. I mean, if if one forgets that basically he was the one who lost them in the cave in the first place, he is able to uh, have this moment of romance to the extent that he can have romance of being a, a young boy and her being a young girl. And he's also come out of this whole adventure's with he, him and, and Huckleberry having uh, recovered this amazing trove of gold coins, uh, which has never quite explained what 
where that came from in the first place. So he and and Huckleberry are incredibly rich. And you think that this is going to be a moment of finally things are going to change. But the I, I do think it is uh, Twain saying, oh, that that Tom, ha ha ha, you know, at the, at the end of the book, um, which is which is a, a standard comedic thing to do, which is to say, like, oh, people don't change that much, really. If you thought this was going to change Tom, it's not going to change Tom. It is development of a sort, because previously Tom is drawing people in the direction of, you know, chaos and romance novels and things. And here he's still doing that somewhat, but he's also drawing Huck back into society, right? Like he's sort of influencing him to join the the townsfolk that he has previously been estranged from and kind of loathed by, in a way, or rejected by, at least. Um... So that's why I was thinking that that's sort of a change in Tom. And then it's followed by the conclusion where Twain says, this is a history of a boy, but it has to stop here because if it goes any further, it'll be the history of a man. I'm not the first person to point this out. Twain has a nasty streak to him. He's got this, he he has a, de- a depressive, uh, contrarian, uh, jaundiced view of, of life. And at the end of this, when Huckleberry is talking about why he doesn't want to join society and why being rich is going to cause him more more problems, you could write a scene like that in a way that really romanticized, uh, romanticizes what it is to be poor, but to have self-awareness and to have um freedom and just just being being happy to be who you are i guess the the but you could you could write that straight and it could be it could satisfy your readership particularly it could satisfy a middle class uh, educated readership that may be well to do for itself to think, oh, well, the poor are better off being where they are. But in the end, the way that Huckleberry describes it, you're not quite sure that you, that his life is any better. I mean, he is living in a barrel. He is um, living a dangerous life, a hard scrabble life. You know, when in the next book, we get introduced to his alcoholic father who, uh, kidnaps him and Huckleberry Finn is not necessarily living a good life but the but but civilizing him isn't necessarily going to be an answer either and Tom's call back to society is you know I, I, I it could be motivated by concern for for Huck but it could also be concern that he's going to lose his companion who is is a good companion because he tends to do what Tom tells him to do I kind of left the book with a slightly sour feeling like it it, it amazes me that this book continues to be such a uh in, in the popular imagination, it's such a sentimental book. Everyone has that picture in their head, of that of that Norman Rockwell painting of the whitewashing the fence and whitewashing the fence. That that whole segment, which is 
very early in the book is what people think about when they think about Tom Sawyer. It's like, oh, this wonderful story of a kid who is able to outsmart people and what a you know and think about like a time when people whitewashed their fences how quaint or whatever and you know i i've left this book feeling like boy this was not this was not a happy time for anybody in this book yeah i mean i think that you can certainly read it as you know huck welcoming huck into a society that previously had, didn't want to have anything to do with him, you know, you can see that that would be an uncomfortable position to be in, right? Um, and expecting him to immediately, like, learn and take on the mores of that society would be difficult. So that's all understandable. Well, compare this to, say, a book like, um, like, like Oliver Twist, where, you know, in, in that book... Oliver is brought back into high society because it turns out all along he was uh, actually uh, the heir to, uh, to to gentry, you know, and 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 so the Victorian idea of of caste is is uh, maintained, but this poor uh, outcast is you know is brought in, and in this book. Um, it's money that does that, you know, like, like yeah. people, people, people like Huck now that he's got a fortune. Well, the widow is going to adopt him even before she knew that. Uh, well, yeah, I guess, I, I mean, he did, he did, he, he saved did her life, so. save her life. Yes. Basically, um, from, from, from Joe, you know, I, I was thinking about this, uh, this book also in terms of, um, like comparing it to, of all things, Peter Pan, hmm. uh, because uh, both of these, both Peter Pan and th this book are about uh, childhood that doesn't want to let go of, of childish things. And both of them feature children who run away from home to, to, to live in the wild and to, to, to be, uh, you know, to be wild, you know, to, to be wild things like uh, the Marie Syndax uh, uh, story. In Peter Pan, what civilizes those those lost boys is is Wendy is there. She is the the, the, the cult of motherhood as the as the uh, as the civilizing element to uh, to the savagery within within little boys. Um, in this book, there isn't anything like that. In this book, it's like uh, people get to, uh, kids. Kids are supposed to, you know, run off and and be free. And and to the extent that they are brought back into the the fold of um, civilization, uh, I'm not sure that Twain actually sees that as a good thing. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, another book that I kind of compared it with was Anne of Green Gables which is written in 1908 or published in 1908. Um, so 25 years later, uh, you know, but that's got a similar sort of setup and you've got an orphan, um, you know, cause Tom Sawyer is an orphan, uh, <clears throat> who is brought into this family who is not entirely his own. 
um, and gets into all kinds of trouble and is disciplined by the parental figures, but who or particularly the, the, the maternal figure, but who secretly kind of likes that they're rebellious and, and loves them. Um, and I don't know, you know, I, I did some very minor Googling and I didn't see any, anything that indicated there was a direct inspiration there. And I mean, to put my, uh, to reveal my views, I like Anne of Green Cables better, but, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just think they're comparable in a way. And also the, like Anne of Green Gables is part of this adopt adoption program that allowed, um, farmers to adopt people basically to work as slaves for free. A real thing had happened in Canada in the early 1900s. Um, so there's also that sort of weird backdrop that the book doesn't necessarily directly interrogate, but which seems very strange. Anyway, this podcast isn't about Anne of Green Gables, but <laughs> but it should be. Yeah, we could do that one sometime. That's a, a really good uh, comparison. It's interesting to think of this book and it's it's place though because it's the earliest of all of these books that we've we've been discussing and mm -hmm. it, it feels like Twain is taking the Victorian cult of childhood which is this idea that there was a time there's a time in our lives where we are basically innocent and that that should be honored and preserved and uh and remembered for the magical time it was and he kind of he 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 interrogates that he throws that out i think that we are invited to see tom as selfish and self-centered we we are invited to see the life that he and huck are, are leading as dangerous I was thinking when I read this book of, of all the posts you see on Facebook about people complaining that when they were young, they never were made to wear their seat belts or when they were young, you know, oh. they would go skating on, on frozen ponds. And of course they survived. So every, so everybody should be able to do this. Yeah. Can I, can I uh, interrupt you for a moment on that point? Um, so I, I did a little bit of trawling social media and, the internet for reactions to this book. Um, and some of my, mostly people think of the whitewashing scene as, as you might expect, um, which I think is funny just cause it's in the second chapter. I don't think that that's actually why people remember it. I think it's a good story, <laughs> but it is funny to me that it's basically the first thing that happens in the book. Um, but uh, one thing I found was a writer named Mel Rhodes Gray wrote a blog post, which is basically a, plot summary for the book and one of the commenters uh, someone named Ruth wrote a comment which says in part as I read this book I am struck by how much things have changed over the years in terms of children's freedom and safety 100 years ago boys were considered dead if they were missing for three days today everyone panics if children are not where their parents expect them to be within three minutes sure Huck had too much freedom and needed some structure and rules from the widow but I don't like the way things are headed so that's exactly the kind of comment you're talking about. <laughs> like, yeah, why why couldn't we have the day where like kids could be missing three days and then you're like, uh oh, better haul out the cannons and see if they've drowned. 
I think every generation in turn wants to point to their childhood as having been a particularly special moment in time when things were were great. You know, I, I remember when I was a kid, I certainly was not uh, a kid who was allowed to wander off, uh, you know, and, and hope that the widow was going to put us up for the night, you know, and or, or mm-hmm. go off on a, on a raft to an island and and disappear for three days but i i did live at a time where i was allowed to bicycle pretty much two or three miles away and was able to go down to the local dairy queen the local uh swimming pool on my own on my own recognizance and that time is gone and i feel like oh that there there is something that's lost on that on the other hand i had kids uh in the 90s and like all other parents during that time it was like no you don't you don't live your leave your kids alone you definitely don't leave them in the car uh while you run into the store everyone will will look with pride to uh some of the dumb things about when they were kids i remember what it was like when people did not wear seatbelts in cars i did not wear a seatbelt in car when i was a kid i also know people who died when they were in their teenage years from being thrown from cars and i'm not going to be an idiot and say oh things were better then i you know i remember uh, some kids that fell asleep on a raft um out on the lake that i grew up near and they fell asleep and and uh the draft the raft drifted to the dam and they got woke up and panicked and one of them jumped off and drowned you know like that stuff kind of stuff did happen um not to intrude that into the podcast too much but um and then i mean this is ridiculous what i'm about to say but i'm going to say it anyway like so this town is based on hannibal missouri as you said and i checked it and over the time period roughly the time period that twain would have been there it grew from a population of 500 to 2000 um, and if all the stuff that happened in this book happened over the course of like three months uh, in my hometown, which was, you know, a thousand to fifteen hundred people, like I don't know what would have happened, but there would have been talk, you know, like there would have been, there would be newspaper articles that like five people are murdered, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a bunch of kids are thought to drown like a couple of times. It's it's wild what. Uh, I mean, obviously this book is completely exaggerated, so that's a ridiculous comparison to make, but boy, perilous times for sure. Um, And I also, the other thing I want to say is just that I feel like one of the things that I get as as someone in 2024 reading this book is like, there just wasn't a lot to do back then, you know, like (laughs) you can play marbles. There are no board games or anything. People aren't really reading that much except in school. Yes, but there were so many ways you could use a dead cat. I mean, it's true. You could get rid of your warts. Did kids have warts? Like, I, I don't remember having warts either. But anyway, um, what a time. What a time to be alive. Um, I asked my niece, who is 16 years old, and who has recently read the sophomore reading list for her school, um, if she knew who Tom Sawyer was, and she didn't, uh, although she had heard of Huckleberry Finn, but had not read the book. So that's a data point. Was she aware of, of the Rush song, Tom Sawyer? I uh, I don't think so. She's into <laughs> country music. 
So, I don't know if that one has come across. Uh, that is something that people did mention when I was like, hey, hey, when's the last time you heard of Tom Sawyer? A lot of people are like, you mean the song? It's like, sure, why not? <laughs> um, where Tom Sawyer is viewed as this libertarian hero of some sort. <laughs> well, you know, I can see where you get that from the book. Any any last things or shall we, well, shall we end it around here? Um, we can end it. I, you know, if you don't mind a few minutes, I will. I can talk a little bit about the sequels. Oh yeah, go ahead. I, I'm curious to hear about the sequel. Tell me about the. Tell me about what happens and what was it? Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer Abroad was written about ten years after Huckleberry Finn, and then Tom Sawyer Detectives was written a couple of years after that. So, uh, as you mentioned in the episode about Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer Abroad is sort of a Jules Verne pastiche or parody or something where uh, and that one features Tom Huck and Jim who all go aboard a self-propelled balloon that's been created and piloted by a mad scientist who um, eventually is going to <laughs> auger the thing into the Atlantic Ocean <laughs> so they have to defeat him and then they travel around Africa it's, it's a very strange book <laughs> This is crazy. This seems like someone writing fan fiction. Yeah, no, it totally is. Um, and it ends incredibly abruptly. Like basically, at some point, Tom Sawyer, uh, Tom Sawyer's um, corn cob pipe gets wrecked. So he sent Jim to pilot the thing back to Hannibal, <laughs> Missouri, to get his spare one. And while he's there, he runs a dot Polly, who's like, "Go back and get get those kids and bring them back here." And that's how the book ends. <laughs> um, that one is about a hundred pages and I found it kind of boring, so I don't really recommend it, but <laughs> there is, there are, there were two package passages that I do sort of recommend if you're into like reading books and then saying, what the hell was that about? Um, one is at the very beginning where, uh, before any of that happens, but Tom Sawyer's sort of complaining to Huck and Jim that uh, there aren't any wars going on and he would like to be able to go off and have adventures and travel. And he specifically talks about how he would like to join the Crusades and free the Holy Land. Um, wow. Yeah, it's wild. And then Huck says, wait, I mean, so you can just go and take people's land? That doesn't seem right. Um, and Tom's like, no, no, it's religious. It's fine. <laughs> and then Jim says... Well, I feel like if we went over there, you know, if we just went over there as people and like we were hungry, those people would probably feed us. You know, they're just people like us. Uh, so I feel like we if we were just going to kill complete strangers who don't mean us any harm, I feel like we'd need some practice. So if later you want to go across the river and uh, kill all those people on that farm and burn their house down, you know, we could start there. <laughs> and I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> what is happening? Um and this is, I should say, Mark Twain uh, at, at, during the Spanish-American War had this fairly sudden, as far as I could tell, um, conversion to being anti-imperialist. Uh, he became a very strong advocate against, um, let's see, the Philippines, I think, the colonization of the Philippines. Uh, but that was a couple of years after that. And at this point, he was still pretty much for it. So I don't know exactly what's going on in that passage. Then um, 
I think like two thirds of the way through the book, they go through a sandstorm and the ship fills up with fills up with sand. And they have this discussion of um, who's going to clean out the sand, right? And so Tom and Huck propose that they will each clean out a fifth of the sand and Jim will clean out three fifths of the sand, which is a number that has certain constitutional. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. But Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't quite understand Twain's point is the thing. I don't either. Um, (laughs) And I read this after re-listening to uh, your episode with, uh, with Jelani about, Huckleberry Finn and one of the things that he talks about in that you know in that book is um, how there's a point fairly early on in Huckleberry Finn where Huck plays a joke on Jim and pretends that you know they had never been separated and so on and Jim when he realizes the truth isn't you know tells him I can't believe you did that right Uh, and Huck um, apologizes to him and basically says, and I never played a trick on Jim again. But then at the end of the book, he does. And then here, obviously, it's, I would, I mean, it, uh, this, that passage just put a very strange and bad taste in my mouth. So that's a thing that happens in that book. Um, and then in Tom Sawyer Detective, I already basically talked about it. Uh, <clears throat> but um, Tom and Huck go back to Tom's Uncle Silas's, which is where the end of Huckleberry Finn takes place. Um, Uncle Silas gets arrested. Tom has to get him out of it. Um, and so both of these books refer to the events of the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, but basically only those last like 11 chapters after Huck arrives at Uncle Silas's farm. So they're just weird and I don't like them for that reason, basically, because <laughs> all of like all of the interesting parts, it's like they never happen. All the interesting parts of Huckleberry Finn, you know, well, I guess I'll go to hell at it. then, you know, that is not referenced. There are slaves in these in particularly in the second book, the Tom Sawyer detective book, you know, Uncle Silas has tons of slaves. He's rich. He's a rich, wealthy slave owner in Alabama. Um, or maybe not in Alabama. Yeah, no, I think it is. Whatever it is. Um, none of them have names, I don't think. And like, you would think that Huck would learn. And it's told from his point of view. It's just, it's just weird. But also these were written 10 years after Huckleberry Finn was. And, you know, um, I kind of wondered the extent to which, because I know that um, Mark Twain had a lot of fairly disastrous investments uh, where he lost all his money and most of his wife's inheritance. And so perhaps these were just like, well, people like these characters. Let's just because these are also, as I said, super short. Tom Sawyer Abroad is like 100 pages. I think Tom Sawyer Detective is like 65, 70. So. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I would say about those books. And now you don't have to read them unless. (laughs) Thanks again to my co-host, Jacob Holler. Sophomore Lit is brought to you by The Incomparable Network. Find more funny, smart podcasts online at theincomparable.com. 
write the show at sophomore.literature at gmail.com. And since I haven't thanked him in a while, the sophomore lit opening theme and the music you hear right now was composed and performed by Malcolm Nygaard. That, that puts off all kinds of... Oh, there goes my dog. I'm going to have to wait for him to stop barking. Yeah, I'm sure my cat will interrupt at some point. <laughs> as well. Yeah. Yeah.